all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. And thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me in the studio today, I have Dr. Rod Riccone, who's the director of the UMMC Cancer Center and Research Institute. And we're going to be talking about gynecological cancer awareness. That's what September is. It is Gynecological Cancer Awareness Month. And we'll talk a little bit about what that is, some of the more common cancers, symptoms, and and what to do if you think you might be at risk for these cancers. If you have a question or a comment for us, email me, fit at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Dr. Riccone. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're so glad that you're here. I think we'll just start with telling us a little bit about yourself and how you, what you're doing at UMC uh, and uh, why you're so passionate about this topic. Yeah, I'm uh, originally from Mississippi. Uh, I was born in the Mississippi Delta and uh, through education and training, uh, bounced around a little bit. I was at Ole Miss and uh, UAB uh, for a short 11 years during my training. <laughs> it goes um, quick. It does go quick. <laughs> and uh, But that's where I uh, you know, fell in love with GYN oncology, uh, really more for the uh, patients. And uh, uh, something unique about GYN oncology is we're the only specialty that does both surgery and chemotherapy. Mm. So that's one less doctor that, that a, a patient to go has see. to go see. Yeah. Exactly right. And uh and kind of at that point in time during my training, got bit by the research bug as well. So I do consider myself a physician scientist mm-hmm. um, and uh, practiced for 16 years in Mobile and uh, had a stint as an interim director. Uh, and then when uh, uh, home came calling yeah. as far as Mississippi, I uh, entertained and interviewed and uh, joined as May 1 of this year. So happy to be here. Uh, back be home. back home. Absolutely. Right. We've got a lot of listeners down in Mobile. So that's a, a good little shout out as well down there. So you mentioned GYN oncology. If we have listeners that maybe are not quite sure what that means, what does a GYN oncologist do? Yeah, so basically we uh, take care of patients that have cancers of the GYN tract or a suspicion of Mm -hmm. a cancer. So uh, those include things like uh, the uterus itself, the womb, uh, the cervix, the mouth of the womb, uh, the tubes and ovaries, uh, as well as the vagina and the vulva, which is the skin outside Mm -hmm. the vagina itself. And so all those uh, cancers uh, or suspicion of having those cancers are patients that we take care of. Mm -hmm. And that can include... Uh, surgery and surgery alone uh, or in combination with, you know, chemotherapy or radiation therapy, just depending on the clinical scenario. Yeah. 
So September is Gynecological Cancer Awareness Month, and that's why we wanted to do this show today. But why is awareness of these such a big emphasis? Yeah, I think uh, just in general with healthcare, you know, we need to be our own advocates mm-hmm. uh, in empowering patients to understand, you know, what symptoms to look for uh, because, um, you know, the best and most effective way to treat a cancer is to prevent it. Exactly. And and so uh, empowering patients to understand what to look for uh, with those uh, groups of cancers that we deal with uh, and understand what's normal, what's not mm-hmm. normal, and when to uh, ring the bell and go see you know their, their local provider. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, regular listeners to the show know I am all about prevention right. and, and making sure that we have all of the information that we need to be able to, to harness the power of prevention and try and, and keep these things from occurring. But if not preventing, then finding at the very earliest point of a pathological process so that we can begin treatment sooner rather than later. When I was preparing for today's show, I found a statistic that was um, pretty staggering when you think about it. So when we're thinking about gynecological cancers, um, the stat that I found was every five minutes, someone is diagnosed um, in America with a gynecological cancer. That's a lot. It is a lot. And uh, oddly enough, we're seeing the incidence, mm-hmm. the number of cases per year actually go up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a few years ago, probably a decade or so ago, it was about, you know, one in seven minutes. Now mm-hmm. it's one in five. It's increased from around 75,000 cancers to near you know, near and over 115,000 wow. cancers. Uh, probably the, the, the bigger stat that we want to correct is uh, when you look at the mortality from GYN cancers, it's about 35,000 women a year. Wow. So that's one in 15 minutes mm. uh, someone will die of a GYN malignancy. And we, we definitely need to continue research and um, continuing to empower patients, you mm-hmm. know, to kind of, you know, listen to their body, you know, learn about what's important and then, you know, to act and to help us in this journey. Yeah, so. absolutely. Because, you know, mortality or dying from one of these, I'm sure is related to the stage at which these are found and being able to treat. So the earlier we find it, the better likelihood of of being cured or going into remission. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at that at early stage across our group of cancers, you know, the survival rate, you know, from Mm -hmm. that is well over 90 Mm -hmm. percent. Uh, even ovarian cancer, which is kind of our worst actor, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, still early stage is, is well over 90%. As those stage increases, that, that unfortunate survival decreases. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you mentioned ovarian cancer, which is probably one that people have at least heard of. Uh, and then we th- think of cervical cancer. That's another one that gets a lot of, um, a lot of press and a lot of, of health promotion activities around it. What are the other, you know, more, or, common-ish gynecological cancers that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, endometrial cancer or uterine cancer uh, is the most common. Uh, there are about you know 70,000 cases per year. Uh, it's, it's a cancer that occurs mostly in women who are, are past menopause, mm-hmm. uh, but can occur earlier as well. And, uh, and some of the major symptoms from that are, you know, vaginal bleeding, uh, postmenopausal bleeding, uh, abdominal pain. Uh, so if a patient uh, has any of those symptoms and uh, recognize that that's, that's not normal, mm-hmm. um, and, and it can, you know, doesn't always have to be bleeding. We see a lot of patients who have a, a discharge, uh, maybe, you know, brown discharge. Mm-hmm. Or just, and those can also be early warning signs. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, anything, as I tell patients, 
regardless of age, if it's something new that's happening, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just don't just accept it as, oh, this is just part of it. Um, you know, I think mentioning it to, your, you know, your healthcare provider is a first step. And, and if it really is nothing to worry about, then they should be able to tell you that. If, if not, then there's testing and other things we need to do. Exactly. And I think that that, you know, keeps a lot of people from reaching out. Sometimes they're like, well, that's that's probably normal, you know, and and if you Google, which I usually tell people, don't, don't no, fall, Doctor Google, don't yeah. don't fall down the Google hole because it will either tell you you are completely fine or like the world is ending. There is usually uh, the truth lies somewhere in the the middle there, but it's often buried uh, in search optimization features. So you know. It, I absolutely never mind someone asking, you know, hey, is this is this okay, you know, or any of these different kinds of things. I would so much rather you come on in, let us take a look, run some tests if we need to, uh, than to just kind of let it go and you know, kind of just just be be scared to come tell us those things or think you're bothering us. You are not bothering us. That's, that's why we're here to answer those questions. No, exactly, and, and, and as you know. Physicians, nurse practitioners, providers take care of patients. I mean, th- those are those are some of our mm-hmm. uh, fun visits. There's mm-hmm. some of our you know easy visits. Yeah, uh, and we much rather spend our time doing that in that preventative role mm-hmm. and reassuring role than than you know un- the unfortunate scenarios where we do have to gl- you know give some and deliver some bad news. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, we do have a caller on the line, so we will go to Natchez and say good morning, Mike. How can I help you? Uh, yes, I wanted to know. Uh uh, what integrated functional medicine is? Are you familiar with that new specialty? Mine is lifestyle medicine. They are very closely related, and so I can talk a little bit about how what the commonalities are between those things, and then a little kind of few of the differences as well. So, at the root of all these integrative functional and lifestyle medicine, what we are trying to do is get down to the root cause of what is ailing someone or what is driving their disease symptoms uh, and figure out how to treat that. With lifestyle medicine, we typically use just lifestyle interventions. So improving your sleep, uh, improving your nutrition, you're working on your stress management. Uh, If you're smoking or using alcohol, working on reducing or eliminating those, focusing in on good, healthy social relationships so that we set your body up for success in terms of being able to decrease inflammation and all of those different kinds of things. Integrative health uh, incorporates a lot of those strategies as well, but it also brings in what we kind of used to call complementary and alternative therapies, which I never really liked that term, uh, especially the alternative part. I do like the complementary part because they're all complementary to each other, Uh, but it may also include things like um, mind-body medicine, um, acupuncture, massage therapy, Uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, all of those techniques. And then functional medicine um, also comes along in there and is working along some of the same processes. Um, Functional medicine tends to have a little bit more laboratory analysis where maybe looking for some hormonal imbalances or different deficiencies in things. And we'll also use some supplements uh, to try and address those along with the other lifestyle modalities that I mentioned earlier. Did that help at all? That's a lot. So uh, I'm still confused because uh, I exercise. Mm -hmm. I I I don't smoke. Good. Uh, I I keep my weight down. I I do all the. I did have a stroke. 
Okay. And so uh, I don't know if they need this will help me. I mean, I'm, I'm not doing anything now that integrated medicine or lifestyle medicine can help me. I'm 80 years old. Well, that's wonderful right there. And, you know, there's always room for lifestyle and integrative health um, in whatever it is you're trying to, to do, even if it's just staying healthy. Um, having a consult with an integrative medicine or a lifestyle medicine um, specialist is always a good idea. Um, but if you're happy where you are and you are enjoying life, then you're good. That's our goal is good quality life. That's always the goal I have for my patients. Well, I tell you what, I don't. I, don't, I just worked on my wife. She takes good care of me. Good, good. It's good that you have a support person to help you along there. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your answer. Absolutely, Mike. You have a good rest of your day. All right, we talked about um, kind of the importance of early detection of uh, got GYN cancers and you know coming to see us so that we can start to evaluate those things and either reassure you that this is a normal variation or begin treating things if we do find an abnormality. And you mentioned that endometrial cancer was the most common, correct? That's correct. And it's not one that you hear a whole lot about, you know, unfortunately. So I'm glad we're going to kind of tackle that in this next segment. We're going to kind of lump it with cervical and endometrial cancer, kind of in the same general region. But let's start with the endometrial cancer first. Like, what is the word endometrial? Like, what, what is that talking about? Yeah, so um, essentially in the uterus itself, in the womb, the, the lining on the inside is called the endometrium. Uh, and so during a, a patient's, you know, uh, childbearing years, mm-hmm. that's where uh, the, the fetus would attach to. It's a little and, house. And uh, it's a little house for it to grow up, <laughs> <laughs> to grow in. That's right. Uh, but but later in life, you know, those cells, those glands can change mm-hmm. and uh, develop into, you know, abnormal cells, pre-cancer cells or cancer cells. And so, uh, as I alluded to earlier, you know, uh, abnormal bleeding, mm-hmm. you know, heavy bleeding, uh, bleeding between cycles, you know, uh, or bleeding after menopause are all kind of early warning signs that something could be going on. Um, and it's important to relay that to your, you know, uh, GYN, mm-hmm. you know, or healthcare provider with some very, you know, helpful tests, mm-hmm. uh, an ultrasound to kind of look at that line. See how thick it might see be. See how thick it is. And uh, plus minus an actual biopsy, mm-hmm. which the biopsy is, can be done in the office. Mm-hmm. It's similar to a pap smear. Um, and so although it's the most common GYN cancer we deal with, you know, around 70,000 a year, uh, fortunately, it, it tends to have a very good prognosis. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is that it's called early. Mm-hmm. You know, most patients do recognize that if they're having abnormal bleeding, it's a nuisance to their life mm-hmm. or bleeding after yeah. menopause. They realize that's not normal. And because of that warning sign that most patients will have, they'll seek out, you know, you know, treatment and mm-hmm. care and uh, and so about 85 to 90 percent of patients with a cancer of the endometrium all they need is surgery and so very few patients need things like you know chemotherapy mm-hmm. radiation uh, it's important for us as we do this kind of cancer procedure to you know get all the information as I tell patients so we do a full hysterectomy at that time mm-hmm. uh, but we also take you know lymph nodes and biopsies kind of our staging procedure to mm-hmm. make sure it hasn't spread and again the overwhelming majority of folks that's all they need is that surgery let's hang out for a second in staging because we alluded to it in the in the first segment of the show and I think it's something that we throw out a lot when we're talking about cancers is a stage one or stage three what do we actually mean when we're talking about cancer staging yeah the, the way I, I like to talk about staging is and this can almost 
almost be extended out through any cancer that we talk about. So stage one is confined to the organ of origin. Mm -hmm. So regardless of where it started, in an ovary, in the pancreas, it doesn't matter. A stage one cancer is only found in that organ. Stage two is it's in that organ, but usually there is some local or adjacent spread. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, stage three is there spread in the region. You mm-hmm. know, for GYN cancer, this usually means it's outside of that organ, outside of adjacent, but it's in the pelvis. Uh, and then stage four is distant widespread. Mm-hmm. So for, again, for our cancers, that's usually something outside of the pelvis and in the abdominal cavity. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why you get lymph nodes when you initially do that that removal um, so that you can see, you know, do we have any cancer in that lymph node? Because then we may have to go looking looking further to see where this may have spread from. Yeah, looking further. And then also that's so important to a cancer you know, provider like myself to understand what's the best treatment. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously every treatment that we recommend has the goal of providing the best, you know, survival and cure mm-hmm. rates with it. And so we want to uh, we want to make sure we're treating a patient adequately. And, mm-hmm. and as I tell them, we don't want to undertreat, you know. We don't want to overtreat. And we don't want to overtreat either. Right. We want to get it right. And right. so that's Just why. Just like Goldilocks, <laughs> sweet spot, the sweet spot there. That's where that's we want right. to get, absolutely. Well, you want to limit any, um, you know, negative effects from an over, you know, over treatment. Um, but you do that's want correct. to be as, you know, as aggressive as you need to be to take care of the situation there. All right, we have a caller on the line. So we will go to Vicksburg and say good morning Betty how can we help you um I just wanted to make a statement and beg people that if they have any symptoms to please go to a doctor immediately mm-hmm. when I was 47 I had a 28 day period and I called the doctor and they worked me in immediately and um the biopsy from that showed precancer and I had surgery a week later and the uh tissue analysis from surgery showed that I did have cancer mm-hmm. of the endometrium and it had penetrated one third of the way through the lining. And um, I, I just did fine after surgery. I didn't have to have any chemo. And uh, I'm 83 now and I'm thankful to that gynecologist and the Lord. And I just hope that any woman that has any off signs goes to a doctor immediately and thank you for letting me make this statement absolutely betty thank you i I promise i did not plant betty into the call (laughs) that she is a perfect example thank you and and congratulations and and uh, i'm glad you're doing well but uh, that is a perfect example of what we're trying to accomplish with knowing that something's not Mm -hmm. right and seeking out care and how beneficial it can be yeah absolutely and i just want to you know commend betty for listening to her body going this is not right i should not this should not be happening i'm going to go tell somebody so that they can can take a look and see and you know she said she was in her 40s so i'm not you know sure where she was in her you know premenopausal postmenopausal perimenopausal kind of area there um, but one thing i always tell my my ladies who have gone through menopause is any bleeding after menopause is is not normal you know if you're you know she had a, a lengthy period here 28 days but if you're spotting or any of those kinds of things after uh, menopause that is a, a a sign to call your 
your healthcare provider and let them take a look and see what's going on there. Yeah, and I will point out the the most common reason to have bleeding, even after menopause, is benign mm-hmm. reasons. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, we don't want to scare people, but but we want everyone to have that information and be armed with that information to know mm-hmm. that it's not normal. Uh, and if it's benign, there's some pretty easy ways to mm-hmm. take care of what's going on, absolutely. which is the most common thing. Yep, absolutely. Um, okay, so endometrial, we talked about. Let's talk about cervical. That's one that gets a you know a lot of um, a lot of coverage and a, you know a lot of awareness out about cervical cancer. But we're still continuing to see a lot of women uh, be affected by cervical cancer and unfortunately die from cervical cancer. Yeah, no, and, and cervical cancer is a great example of how screening can mm-hmm. be effective for cancer. Uh, you know, there's about 120 different cancers that the body can, in theory, develop. Uh, and we only have screening tests for four, maybe five of them. And cervix is one of those. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's so important to get, you know, the pap smear and the screening test uh, as recommended. Now, there's a lot of you know, different timing, you know, for some people it's annual, it's once a year, for other people it might extend out to three years or beyond. So, but that screening is so important to catch early changes, that kind of pre-cancer. And so we're able to treat those pre-cancers at such a high effectiveness Mm -hmm. rate uh, to, you know, prevent cancer from coming along. Uh, the second part, you know, that I think is so important is the HPV vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, HPV is a virus that um, there's multiple, multiple types. Some are just like warts. Some are actual causation of cancer. And there's high risks that are there. And um, the vaccine for HPV uh, has been approved for, uh, you know, well over 15 years mm-hmm. now and uh, coming up on 20 years. Uh, very effective, very safe. Um, and in some regards, you know, has the potential if we were to vaccinate everyone who's you know um, eligible eligible for it to eradicate cervical cancer, mm-hmm. uh, as well as other cancers. There's other cancers that are HPV driven, and so it, it because we have that strong hammer, if you will, mm-hmm. to, to nail out that nail. You know, I think every person that deals with GYN cancers, you know, we try to scream it from the rooftop mm-hmm. to say, hey, this is effective. It, it it's safe. Um, and some would argue that if it was any other cancer beyond cervix, if we had a vaccine for yeah. breast cancer preventative, people would be lining up to take they it. They would be lining up, fighting over it. Yeah. So, um, and again, we've got you know a plethora of data of you know twenty plus almost thirty years when you look at the earlier trials mm-hmm. showed that it's safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I rem- like as soon as right when I entered clinical practice, because this is I think my 18th year, that was it had kind of just come on the market, and you know it was it was a much narrower eligibility criteria at that point. You know, it was just female, just like nine to 26, I believe, is what the kind of initial years were on that. Um, but now you can get it up into your 40s, correct? That's correct. Yeah, forty-five, and 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 also, it's for boys as well. Yes, it is for boys uh, as well. I'm gonna embarrass my son. He was the first male to be first boy to be vaccinated in the state of Alabama. Oh my gosh! Uh, so Does he have a little crown that he, he wears? He should. He should. <laughs> It's our job to embarrass our children, that's I think. Right. He, he hates that line, but yeah. it's true. So well, that's wonderful. Yeah. You know, and you mentioned some of the other cancers that can be HPV driven. And we tend to think about head and neck uh, cancers um, being linked to that. And that is one that we will often see in the, the male population. And, you know, 
it has been out for so long and we have so much um, you know, kind of data around its safety and, and efficacy of, of decreasing these high risk strains of, of HPV. Because you mentioned there's like a hundred and some strains of, of HPV and there are a set of them that are what we would call higher risk strains that are just more likely to or are more closely associated with um, cancer strains. Some of the other ones cause things like genital warts and just other warts in general, all those warts that you've had, you did not get from from a frog tinkling on you, like your grandmama told you. Uh, <laughs> it is a, a viral thing going on there. Um, but that vaccine is important. And, you know, when I first started talking about it, you know, very early in clinical practice, it was a tough pill for people to swallow because they didn't want to think about their young children being sexually active. And I was like, well, I don't really want to think about your nine-year-old being sexually active either, but at some point in their life, they will become sexually active. And so having this vaccine on board before that That's occurs correct. is is the best strategy for prevention and, there. And, and multiple studies have shown mm-hmm. that it's, it, that is the most effective scenario mm-hmm. is uh, when you uh, get it beforehand. Uh, now, I'm a proponent of incorporating that with other, you know, yes, childhood vaccines. Exactly. Um, and, and that's when we did it actually for my son as well as my mm-hmm. two daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I, I believe in it enough to vaccinate my own children. Yeah, that's so. that's always the, the giveaway. Mm-hmm. Did, did you feel confident enough in it to, mm-hmm. to give it to yourself or your or your kids? Yeah. Absolutely. One hundred percent. So I think one of the confusing things that may happen sometimes with uh, cervical cancer screening is the age guidelines do do change. Uh, you know, it, it used to be first um, 18 or first sexual encounter, you know, three years after that, you would get your pap smear. And then it was every year. And then it's spaced to every three years. And so women may be confused about when they need to go. And that's okay. Talk to your regular healthcare provider. If you don't have a gynecologist, if you have a gynecologist, just ask them, am I due for this? You know, what tests or or screenings am I due for in the upcoming year? Mm -hmm. So you can make a plan on that. And if you're not due for the pap smear part, which is where we actually use some little um, little instruments to just get a little little sample off of your cervix, that that doorway into the the uterus uh, to to look at. Then you still need a pelvic exam. Uh, a lot of times, people usually think, oh, "I don't need a pap smear. I don't need to go." Uh, but you do need you do. to go. You know. Well, and it, the way I equate it to, to patients and, and discuss it, it's you know the screening test is different from a healthcare you know visit. visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, just you know they might go see their internist or someone, but they only get maybe a colonoscopy every five years because mm-hmm. that's what it's you know due for. Yep. So uh, the same thing with you know cervical. Mm-hmm. You know, and so they might not get a pap smear, but they still need to go see their doc once still need a year. To go for, um, for all these other reasons. Yeah, we're going to check your blood pressure. We're going to look at your cholesterol, your blood sugar, all these different kinds of things. Um, if you need a mammogram, get that done. Um, and then, you know, a pelvic exam as well, just to check, you know, ovaries and, and all the other things that can go awry down there. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell here with Dr. Rod Riccone. And we've been talking about gynecological cancer awareness month. And we had a wonderful caller the last segment who's shared her uh, success story with early detection and treatment of endometrial cancer. And if you have a short story that you would like to share, we'd love to hear that today. Or if you have a question for us, we'd also love that. Before the break, we were talking about endometrial cancer and cervical cancer. And now I'd like to move into um ovarian cancer you know yes. it it seems to be a, a trickier one to get a handle on sometimes in terms of symptoms it, it is and um 
you know, unlike cervical cancer where we have a screening mm-hmm. test, there is no screening test for ovarian cancer. Uh, the symptoms are usually kind of, you know, vague. Um, and um, but but we do see, you know, patients that have some changes in mm-hmm. their their daily, you know, symptomatology. Um, there, there's a, you know, kind of an acronym of BEACH uh, that people Beach. use. Okay. And so, you know, B is for bloating. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, e is for early satiety or getting full quickly. Uh, a is for abdominal pain. Um, you know, C is for change in bowel or bladder habits. And then the H is heightened fatigue. Now, if you ask any postmenopausal patient if they have any of those, it's going to be, you know, check, 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 and check. And yeah. so, uh, and so what's probably more important, uh, in my opinion, is a change. So if someone is, you know, 67 years old mm-hmm. and they're not having any of those symptoms, and then over the next, you know, three, six, 12 months develop, mm-hmm. you know, those types of symptoms, it should, you know, um, send some warning signs that, hey, I, I probably need to check this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, because there's really no good screening test, no good symptoms to go on, you know, unfortunately, most patients who have ovarian cancer or develop it are, are diagnosed at later stages. Mm-hmm. And that, that makes it a difficult cancer to treat. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, is also another good reason for those yearly visits with your health care provider. Even if you don't need a pap smear anymore, um, still going because they're going to ask about all of those, you know, symptoms. Um, and they're going to feel around in your pelvic area you know if you if you have ovarian cancer and it's grown they may be able to actually feel a, a mass or some something poking when when we do an exam in there um, you know and a lot of those symptoms that you mentioned they are very vague and again we don't want to to overly alarm people because the vast majority of those symptoms are going to be related to something else. Bloating may be, you know, you had um, a food that irritates your, your belly or what I see a ton is a lot of sugar-free products uh, with people. They're wanting, you know, to, to they're choosing those for whatever reason, in particular sugar alcohols, uh, and they will cause a lot of abdominal pain and bloating for folks. That's always the first question I ask when somebody um, uh, tells me they've got bloating. And then early satiety, you know, feeling full sooner. There are a plethora of new medications on the market that we're using for obesity, that that's one of the ways that they they help. So um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't disclose those symptoms, though, right? You tell us and then we ask you some more questions and try and get to the bottom of what is going on there. Why would a change in bladder and bowel habits, why would that be associated with really any of these gynecological cancers? Yeah, most just because of anatomical location. Mm -hmm. You know, the bowel and bladder are in the area, you know, intimately involved, you know, with the GYN organs. And and so in addition to being kind of new as far as those symptoms, although vague, uh, I think also being persistent. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned kind of the one-offs. Well, you know, I went to to Taco Bell, so I had some, you know, uh, (laughs) some bloating bloating and some (laughs) other issues. And uh, uh, but but it's not a, you know, uh, a a habitual type Mm -hmm. of regular thing. So Mm -hmm. I think new symptoms Mm -hmm. and persistent symptoms Mm -hmm. that you can't pinpoint other things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. are definitely something to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And so if, you, if you've ever been pregnant and you think about your uterus, have you have not. I have. Uh, and it is quite an adventure. But um, as your uterus gets bigger, everything in there gets squished around. So you may notice you pee more frequently or you feel like you're not able to empty your bladder because there's something sitting on different different parts of it. Same with your um, bowel movements. You know, if that baby is uh, carrying a little farther back and it's kind of sitting on um, 
part of your intestines or putting pressure on that, you may have difficulty going to the bathroom. And so the same thing could be happening with, um, you know, a growth in, in that pelvic region could be just putting pressure on the bladder or, um, or the uh, bowels and causing some of those symptoms there. Again, usually not what is going on, but one of those things that should prompt um, a visit so that we can do a little bit uh, more evaluation there. All right. Now, the next two, I think, or and we're going to put them together, vaginal and vulvar cancer um, are ones that are not really talked about very much at all. Yeah. And, and fortunately, they're uh, very uncommon, mm-hmm. almost rare. Uh, and, and we do kind of group them together. Some of that is that they are HPV related, uh, which the vaccine does have some benefit yep. for that as well. Um, and, you know, from uh, the vagina, that, that's, you know, that's on the inside and, and something that typically can't see but mm-hmm. would present with some bleeding or spotting or abnormal discharge. Uh, vulvar, you know, it, it's skin. Mm-hmm. And, and the same processes, you know, that happen for skin cancers or moles or, you know, precancerous mm-hmm. lesions, even though it's typically not a sun-affected area, yeah. uh, it can still... But no judgment no if judgment. you, if yeah, you decide right. to sunbathe uh, that way. I'm not throwing any shade, pun intended. <laughs> but, uh, but, that was a good one. Yeah, but, but nonetheless, you know, if you notice a growth or something mm-hmm. that's new, something that's bothering you uh, and concerned about it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, your your OBGYN, your internist, your dermatologist mm-hmm. should be able to, you know, take a look and see, is this something to be concerned mm-hmm. about or is this an age spot or, mm-hmm. you know, something else that's benign that is no, no, no reason for worry. Uh, and a biopsy can be helpful, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, vulvar, we tend to diagnose more at an earlier stage uh, for obvious reasons. You yeah, know, people it, are like, what's that? It, what's yeah. that? It's new. I can see it. Mm-hmm. I can feel it, you know. Uh, when I wipe and things like mm-hmm. that, and so, um, and but because of that, you know, majority of those are treated with surgery alone, mm-hmm. and uh, which is and that would just be kind of excision of that that area. Exactly right, uh, kind of a wide local excision, mm-hmm. you know, just to remove that area. Sometimes we do it for diagnostic purposes because uh, we're not sure. Uh, sometimes we do it for treatment, you mm-hmm. know, or both. Absolutely, and you know, I sound like a broken record, but that is another reason to go to your healthcare mm-hmm. provider for your routine checkups because part of what we do is we're going to look in those areas and you know i'm going to say hey has that been you know has that been there for a long time you know if i see something different and you may say it's been there since i was i was a little kid you know or no what are you talking about you know and then we can get a mirror and you can look and we can we can talk about uh, what that might be in the best kind of treatment course uh, from there but just having those conversations with your healthcare provider is so important and i get it like it is not that's not a fun doctor's visit to go to you know you've got that very attractive paper outfit that we are given to put on uh, and you know the table is not comfortable and all these different kinds of things uh, but it is so very important um, to to do that and just have a good like tell people you're nervous like you know the first time I ever went to the gynecologist I sweated through that paper gown like the whole thing <laughs> I told the sweet nurse I said I'm gonna need another one because I have sweated through this and I am terrified and she sat right by me the whole time you know we want you to come we want you to feel as comfortable as you possibly can during these types of visits. Absolutely. So if someone, you know, is like, all right, I'm going, I'm, you know, I'm, I think maybe, you know, I've got some of these, this bloating, this early satiety, it's not getting better. Um, you know, I want to come in and, and talk about ovarian cancer. What does a, a workup for that look like? Like what tests are ordered? Yeah, you know, it's, um, 
you know, first and foremost, I think, you know, as part of knowledge and knowledge being power, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think one thing about ovarian cancer that is unique is uh, there, there's uh, about 10% or more of patients actually have kind of a genetic hereditary mm-hmm. uh, component to it. So, you know, if you've got a strong, you know, family history of ovarian and or breast cancer in your family, uh, it's something to be aware mm-hmm. of. And there's some genetic tests that can be done to, to determine if a patient has a certain set of genes that uh, make you high risk for those cancers because uh, that's a different workup and different exactly. evaluation than, you know, quote, the general population. Mm-hmm. Uh, in general terms, you know, less than 1% of all patients, female patients, will have ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a, it is fortunately an uncommon thing. Um, but, you know, if a patient's having those types of symptoms, you know, first we, we kind of quantify that. Mm-hmm. What else is going on? Right. You know, is this something that we need? You know, how often is it going on? We qualify it. We, we do all the, uh, the I guess, interview process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then a, a physical exam is kind of that next step. Uh, and, and, you know, the lack of feeling a mass is good, mm-hmm. you know, because ovaries should be small. Um, and uh, but if we feel something, you know, then that usually leads to an ultrasound mm-hmm. uh, or at times even a CAT scan mm-hmm. uh, to where we get some, you know, pictures of what's, you know, going on on the inside. Because mm-hmm. an exam is really good, but it's not perfect, as yeah. I tell patients. And, and, and a CT scan or an ultrasound, it's really good. It's not perfect either, but you put those things together and usually. Pieces of information taken in the, in the total picture. Absolutely. And it usually gives us, to, you know, some idea of whether this is something to be worried about mm-hmm. or whether we can just totally reassure, you know, reassure the patient reassure, that everything's absolutely. okay. All right. And in this last segment of the show, I want you to put on your other hat, the one you said is research related, and That's tell correct. us what is going on in the, the world of research and in particular at UMC. What's what's happening? Yeah. It, um, so, so I guess first and foremost, you know, when I think of people you know, think of research, I think of, you know, clinical research, Mm -hmm. clinical trials. And uh, that is something I'm very passionate about. Um, You know, my stance is is twofold. You know, one is that, you know, every discovery we've ever made in medicine has come upon the shoulders of a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we know how to do things better. And and we, um, as I say, hit a lot of singles. We don't hit a lot of home runs, but Mm -hmm. you you string enough singles and doubles together. You you score. You you can score and win some (laughs) games. And that's right. And, And the second thing from cancer specifically for clinical trials, uh, you know, I consider that the standard of care, mm-hmm. is that the standard of care for every cancer patient should be a clinical trial. And that doesn't mean we're just doing, you know, experimental first line, you know, a lot of times clinical trial takes what is the best standard. And then they say, okay, we're going to give regimen A, because we know regimen A works the best of all of our knowledge. And we're going to give regimen A plus Agent X, mm-hmm. something we're developing, and see is that better than what we've had before? Mm-hmm. You know, same or, or, or whatnot, and uh, and so uh, that that's kind of the framework I think that we uh, work on now. now at UMMC, in addition to kind of clinical research, which really everybody can do mm-hmm. from an oncology perspective, uh, you know, we do have basic, you know, science researchers, you know, that are in the Married lab. Married to one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you, you know one real well. And uh, I, I, know, I know him, but not as well. Yeah. And... Um, but yeah, so and it's so important just to get those types of discoveries, you know, to help us move the clinical practice forward. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, you know, bench to bedside, as we call mm-hmm. it. Um, and and I've, I've done a little bit of both, you know, over my career. So kind of I consider myself a translational scientist. Yes. So I try to fill that bridge between what's going on in the labs, you know, and how do we bring that to mm-hmm. patients? Um, 
you know, one of the most interesting projects I've been working on, uh, quote, recently, but it's been over a decade <laughs> as I look back, um, is looking at using the immune system mm-hmm. to help us in ovarian cancer. And um, we, it, we're working with a company for you know, about 12 years now. Where we're actually developing agents that are targeted to the patient's own cancer. Um, you know, we call that autologous, you know, derived, mm-hmm. you know, treatments, but, but, uh, ovarian cancer, what we do is we operate, we take the cancer, you know, out of the patient at the time. Some of it goes to the pathologist, they look at it, but we send a part of it to a lab and we look at, you know, the, you know, the surface receptors mm-hmm. on that cancer and create a treatment targeted towards those, mm-hmm. you know, specific antigens as we call them, specific receptors. And what's unique about that is we can target the immune system to recognize those and to attack it. Mm-hmm. And so a patient undergoes their regular surgery and chemo for ovarian cancer. And at the end of that, we give them these vaccine. It's not a vaccine, but, you know, it's kind of like a vaccine. Well, it, it, it's immune therapy. Immune shot. therapy. Yeah. And we give them a shot once a month. And, you know, and we've seen a tremendous improvement in survivals mm-hmm. with that. And what's what's really neat about it is that, you know, that, you know, shot that we developed for Miss Jones mm-hmm. is only good for Miss Jones. Jones. Miss Johnson, we've got to create another sh- mm-hmm. you know, shot because her, each ovarian cancer is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that to me, that that is, um, you know, been one of the things I've been working on. I think it's a good example of kind mm-hmm. of personalized medicine mm-hmm. and clinical trials. Um, and we've seen a double in, in the survival rate in That's early impressive. trials mm-hmm. right now that we're moving uh, forward and probably within the next year with uh, with a larger, you know, international trial. How long does that process take from taking this out of Miss Jones mm-hmm. to having something we can give back to Miss Jones? Yeah, usually that process takes about uh, two weeks. Wow. And uh, and so um, and so it doesn't really delay our treatment mm-hmm. or doesn't delay anything that we're doing. Um, and and so it's. A large portfolio of different trials, mm-hmm. but you know, one one of the things we're really looking at, in addition to that, is you know, some patients respond really, really well to that therapy, some not so much, mm-hmm. and so you know, we're trying to personalize that even further. Say, right. well, if you have you know this, this marker right. or this type of you know uh, cancer, that it works better for those mm-hmm. patients. And is that something that can be abstracted out to other types of cancers as well? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the looked at sarcoma, mm-hmm. looked at uh, uterine cancer, looked at breast cancer. So, you know, it's mostly been looked at in solid tumors mm-hmm. with this technology uh, for this, you know, company and this colleague mm-hmm. of mine. Um, but there's other types that are out there for other types of cancers. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, so it, it's it's a novel, you know, new and very interesting way. And it intuitively just makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, instead of the cookie cutter Everybody gets this form of treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, how can we personalize that right. so each patient does better than what right. we've done before? And what you mentioned before, it's not that they just get this. Like they That's got the, the standard of care, the standard treatment that you would get, but in addition, in addition to, to, right? So a lot, I think a lot of times when people hear the word clinical trial, they think, oh, well, like they've tried everything you can for me and, and nothing works and this is the last ditch effort. Or I'm choosing not to get standard of care and I'm going to get... You you know, this this other thing. But like we were mentioning here, you're still treating people, you know, Absolutely. the way we would we know things that work, uh, you know, and then just looking at additional things added on to that. Absolutely. And the overwhelming majority of those trials do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they look at what is, you know, the current, the standard, mm-hmm. you know, and then how can we improve upon mm-hmm. it? And uh, so whether it's at first time diagnosis or first recurrence 
Or, you know, truthfully, there are some studies where we really are experimental mm-hmm. to where we've we've exhausted all exactly. the, the things we know work really well. And we might try something, you know, new mm-hmm. and see if it would work as mm-hmm. well. But if you've just been diagnosed, you know, and you're interested in maybe learning more about clinical trials that are going on, how does how does a patient find that? Yeah, you know, I guess for first drilling down in, in GYN cancer, mm-hmm. so the uh, Foundation for Women's Cancer is a great site for patients. Uh, but then beyond that, you know, the National Cancer Institute, or um, which is, you know, cancer.gov, uh, uh, or the American Cancer Society, which is uh, cancer.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all have very helpful information. It really describes the process of diagnosis, trials, treatment, um, and, you know, a lot of times just arming you with what questions do I need to ask, mm-hmm. you know, my cancer provider? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I would kind of echo the Foundation for Women's um, Cancer. It was a great website. That's where they have a whole kit related to gynecological cancer awareness. So if there's any particular cancer type that we talked about today and you're like, I want to know more about that, that's a great site to go to. There are tip sheets or kind of general overview sheets for all of those questions to ask your healthcare provider about common symptoms, common treatments, lots of good stuff there for you to take a look at. You can also always email me. I love to get those. And my email address is fit at mpbonline.org. I've been your host, Josie Bidwell, with my wonderful guest, Dr. Rod Riccone. And you've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.